0: You're listening to the We Talk Seahawks podcast, a podcast brought to you by Seahawks UK. Stay tuned to our weekly episodes for pre-game and post-game shows, as well as fun and engaging discussions and hopefully some special guest interviews along the way. Thank you for listening, stay tuned and go Hawks. Ladies and gentlemen, Seahawks and football fans everywhere, welcome back to the We Talk Seahawks podcast. Thank you very much for joining with us this week. With me today, I have Matt. Matt, how are you? Hello, yeah, I'm pretty good, yeah,
1: I'm just looking forward to the Super Bowl on Sunday, we're recording this on Saturday evening, so mm-hmm. just getting ready for the game and um, getting the food and the drinks in, the, all the important bits,
0: good, good.
1: and the uh, salute to service gear this, this week, so
0: Very nice, yeah. so we've got no Pietro joining us, side. he's a bit busy, but um, we do have, we are making up with it, with a very special guest. She's a published author. She's been the Seahawks sideline reporter for over a decade now. She's a lovely, lovely person, and we're very, very grateful that she's taken the time to speak to us today. It is the wonderful Jen Mueller. Jen, how are you?
2: I am well. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy a chance to talk football and Seahawks, and I don't care what the storylines are around the Super Bowl and Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes. I'd always talk Seahawks any day of the week even when there's other storylines in the NFL.
0: Love it. It's, it's Super Bowl weekend. We've rolled around really quick, um, as it does every year. Um, it just goes far too quick, and then we have to wait eight months without football. So enjoy it this weekend, everyone. It should be a really good game. We'll get onto to that in a little bit. Um, we'll start off, Jen. Um, I'm very interested in talking a little bit about your career so far. Um, you've been a reporter now. And a broadcaster for over 15 years um which is you probably won't thank me for saying that um but so how 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 did you sort of get into journalism how did the the sort of the role with the seahawks develop and and how did you how did you find your interest in in journalism and broadcasting
2: Yeah, I was encouraged by a high school guidance counselor when I was a junior in high school to maybe think about broadcasting because of my ability to talk and to do it in front of people without seeming to be phased by that. And I thought it was a ridiculous suggestion because who knows how to become a broadcaster? I mean, that's just not something that you think of as a career option. Certainly not if you were a female and certainly not in the mid-90s when I was having this conversation. (laughs) But when I kind of looked into it, I went to a school that had a broadcast journalism department. I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And once you start taking the classes, it it just kind of steps you through the career path, right? I mean, you, you take the classes, you get the internships, you get your first job, and you just work your way up like any other job. I knew that sports was always going to be my area of interest and focus because I was an athlete growing up. I love to talk about sports and it just seemed like more fun than talking about news or politics. And so you just kind of figure out what those steps are in order to get into the field. Now, getting to be in the Seahawks organization, that's a slightly different story. So I was behind the scenes for the first seven years of my career. I was a sports producer. That was the job that was available. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to stay in the industry. And I was working in Seattle. And I thought, man, if that job of sideline reporter ever comes open, I would love a chance to audition for it. Mm -hmm. And I also thought I was uniquely qualified because I spent 10 years as a high school football official. So I knew that I had a different niche than other people who wanted to do that job. So... I used my media credentials as a sports producer to show up at every press conference, every game, every media availability that I could around my full-time gig, right? So Mm -hmm. I was doing my job at the TV station at the time. Mike Holmgren was the coach. Practices happened early in the day. So I would show up early in the day. Then I'd go and work my normal eight and a half, nine hour shifts. I did that for six years. And every year when training camp started, I would tell the guy who is now the person I report to, hey, if anything ever happens and if that job comes open, I'd love a chance to audition. And literally for six years, I would say that, just so that he knew. And then I showed up everywhere he looked. And as it happened, the sideline reporter before me decided that she was going to move to Utah with her husband, who was the play-by-play voice of the Utah Jazz. And the job came open. I auditioned. And I'm pretty sure by that point in time, Everybody already thought I worked for the Seahawks because I was around so much. So it was a really natural transition because I already knew the players, the coaches, the organization, the people that I would be reporting to. So um, a little bit of a long-winded story of how I got there. Certainly not just like apply for the job and get the job. It it was consistently showing up so that they knew that they could trust me if if they gave me the job.
0: Yeah, so... I mean, it's, it's a thing that sort of, I know it's it's something that I've been interested in as well, but I think it's such a, as you'll be well aware, especially in sort of the professional sports industry, it's such a competitive field, um, and, and such a hard, you know, industry to break into and start, you know, start doing your own thing in it and making a name for yourself. How, how challenging did you find it? Or like you say, was it sort of, did it come naturally? Was it, was there obstacles in your way?
2: Oh, sure. And I think you just hit on something that is an obstacle everybody faces when they get into journalism, right? It's hard to be to be recognized. It's hard to get to the point where you don't have to worry about juggling three jobs. I mean, yeah. one of the things that keeps people out of the industry, very talented people, is you have to be able to live on not very much money for the first several years. I worked three jobs for the first 10 years that I was in the industry because I needed to pay for a house and, you know, car and gas money and all of these things. And I know a lot of people who just can't, right? For whatever reason, right? It's exhausting. It's tiring. And I think that's one of the biggest obstacles to entry for anybody. If you're not a former athlete, like a big time former athlete, it feels like you are toiling away and nobody's paying attention to you, right? And then you get the gig, right? And I became the sideline reporter for the Seahawks, or I was on the television broadcast for the Mariners for the first time. And people think, well, where did she come from? Right? Like, (laughs) Oh, like she just appeared on the scene. It's like, no, you people have no idea what I've been doing until three o'clock in the morning at the TV station, trying to put together a resume reel that that you would take seriously enough to give me a job. So I think that's certainly a big obstacle. It's crazy hours for not much money and you have to be a self motivator and your own cheerleader to keep showing up with the yeah. energy and enthusiasm that you need to do the job.
0: I mean, yeah, like like I said, we had we had the brilliant Rob starting on um, last week at BBC Sports um, editor and broadcaster as well from from our neck of the woods. Um, and, and he was telling the story of um, having to go in and do these sort of the scores and the BBC broadcasting work after, I think it was about five o'clock in the morning, the the morning that the Seahawks lost the Super Bowl to the Patriots. Um, and it just sort of, it opens your mind and it sort of opens your eyes and you think, you know, it, for us as, as, as fans and, and as sort of consumers of, of the media, we turn on our TVs, we turn on our radios and you're just there, you're talking and we, and we watch you and, and it's sort of, you, you know, you don't see the back, like you say, you don't see the background. You don't see having to drag yourself. Like say, Rob was full of emotion after that. You know, the ending of that Super Bowl, and then having to go into work. And it's just, it, it's one of those industries where you just sort of, you're just, we, we, we turn on our TVs on a game day, and you're there, and 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 we think that's all you do, and it's like, it, it's really not, is it? It's, it's there's so much more behind the scenes that you just touched on.
2: Yeah, it's um. You know, if the game starts, so here in the States, our games would start, our Seahawks games would start at one o'clock in the afternoon, right? Mm-hmm. I'm usually at the stadium by 10 o'clock in the morning, and I don't leave until about three hours after the game, wow. right? That's just game day. And that's not the hour or so that I spent reviewing notes and things before I went to the stadium. Yeah. And you spent all week doing things so that that time that you are on the radio is like locked in, right? Really good and locked in. The other part of that, so when you talk about the Seahawks loss and going Mm -hmm. to work the next day, try going into the locker room after that one and having it be your job to get interviews with those guys. Right. And I realized that not all media members have my experience because I work for the team. Right. So I have a different relationship there and I do have a lot of emotion. Those guys in the locker room, they become my friends. They are, I've got my go-tos, right. That I know I can count on for an interview at any point in time. When you walk in and you see them emotionally, you know, upset or distressed, you kind of take on that emotion Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're on a plane with them after a tough loss, they're passing you, they're passing me when I'm sitting there in my seat. It's the relationship part of my job makes it super rewarding. That's what I love about it. It also makes it really hard at times because I, I don't just get to leave and go home and pretend like, oh yeah, it's no big deal. No, it's a big deal. Right. I kind of saw the aftermath of whatever happened in the game, yeah. in the locker room and on the plane and on the bus.
0: I, I think that's a great point. Like you say, for for us as fans, we can just, after a big loss, we can turn off our TVs and just try and forget about it and block it out. Whereas, like you say, these players are, are your colleagues in a way that they are, you know, they like you say, they're your friends and, and they're your colleagues. So it's it must be so much harder to sort of disconnect and sort of, you know, leave, you know, that phrase of leaving work at work and don't bring it home. It, it must be so hard for you to do that.
2: It is. And again, there's some really good things about that, right? I love what I do and I don't mind that. But on the flip side of that, when I hear people talking about a game or a play or a player, it's harder for me not to get riled up about it because I experienced it firsthand. Yeah. Right. I, I know things that, that perhaps talk show radio talk show hosts don't because Mm -hmm. they weren't, they weren't there. And so um, I have to separate from the emotion a little bit. The way that I would separate is, I just wouldn't listen to the radio for a couple of days. Yeah. Right, you know, I, like, I just don't read that particular article because <laughs> I don't need to to see anything else about the stats or what happened or something like that.
0: Brilliant, Matt. Do you want to go for the next question, mate? Um, well, I just think I'll, I might add
1: a little bit onto that about yeah, um, yeah. what you said about sort of having relationships with you know players and. And how it can be tough to to, com- to have a conversation with them, sort of after after a tough loss or you know, after something's not gone their way. And something that I know, I mean, recently, obviously, we had the the playoff game against the Rams, um, and you know, you have seen in that game, you have seen players like um, DK Metcalf. You know, he was angry. <laughs> I mean, we could, you know, you can see it through TV. How like how difficult. Is it uh, to talk like, for example, with with that game, how difficult sort of was it to try and talk to the players after that loss and and sort of, you know, get an idea of what's going on with them, if that makes sense?
2: Yeah, so that game is interesting. And really, this entire year has been interesting, right? Because nobody was allowed in the locker room. So it became the PR staff's responsibility to put guys on camera. Or to take them to the podium. And so it's harder to get the full picture because we didn't travel and we weren't in the locker room. And for that game, I was actually hosting the pre and post game show. So I was watching all of these interviews come in from downstairs at the podium. In those moments, and and anytime that you're doing virtual interviews, the flow of questions is very different. Right. If you're in a normal press conference setting, anybody can ask a question at any point in time. You can kind of talk over each other. You can follow up one question with the same train of thought. When you're doing a virtual interview, we do it on Zoom and you put your name in the chat and you say that I have a question to ask. Well, the PR staff just calls on you in order, right? So, the, the flow of the conversation is really disjointed. And that, Matt, to your point, makes it harder to figure out what the real emotion is and what really happened, right? Because that, that conversation just sounds different. And you can't go quite as deep when you are in that type of environment. But if you were to take me back to, let's say, how our season ended last year in Green Bay or the year before where our season ended in the playoffs in Dallas, you know, When I have those moments, everybody knows what happened in the game. There's no sugarcoating it, right? And so the best way to approach it is just to say what happened on that, right? And be very specific, right? Look, you know that you didn't catch the ball when you needed to catch the ball. What happened on that play, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You go right after it. But there has to be a trust that that player has with you that you aren't there to make them look bad. Right. And that's how I ensure that I get interviews win or lose. And I always joke in language acceptable for a radio audience, right? Because I can't have you dropping F bombs and I can't have (laughs) you, you know, saying things that would be um, hurtful to the team or the organization. But those relationships happen during the course of the week where they trust that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And if I say, look, I've got two questions about the game, and then let's talk about what the team needs to do in the offseason right? They trust that that's what's going to happen. And I'm not going to try to get them in that gotcha moment. Like, ah, I got you to admit that it was a bad coaching decision. Oh, I got you to make, you know, your teammate look bad. Mm -hmm. That's not what it is. You just try to sit back and listen to their perspective on it and ask questions that allows them to tell the story. Now you can agree or disagree with what they say, but I'm just trying to give you a venue and an outlet to tell your side of the story is how I look at it.
1: That makes sense. I'm I'm guessing that. That must be so tough in a way, like, as you say, you know, with, with, you know, language that's appropriate, you know, after, after a tough game, you know, if the emotions come flooding out of a player, it must be tough for them to, to also speak in the same way, you know, in in a, in a normal manner, as opposed to criticizing, you know, coaching, coaching decisions and, and and that sort of thing. Um, So I just thought I'd move on to the next question we've got for you um which is can you name sort of any personal highlights that you've had throughout your career um with the seahawks like has there been any standout moment maybe i'll say maybe other than the super bowl win is is there anything that sort of really stood out to you that you've gone damn that you know that's i love my job throughout the throughout the course was there one one moment if that makes sense
2: so so if it's one moment Um, And it's funny that you asked that I actually this week, I don't know that you can see, but behind me, I printed off photos for the first time ever. I printed off some photos and of the photos I printed out. There's a picture of Jermaine Kurz, Doug Baldwin and myself after the NFC championship game we won against the Packers to send us back to the Super Bowl. There's a picture of Golden Tate and I with our arms linked after the Most people call it the Fail Mary game. I call it the Hail Mary game also against the (laughs) Packers. There's me and Pete talking, and the Super Bowl was awesome. I was there for the Beast Quake, like any big moment that's happened in the last twelve years. I have been there and done that. Wow! But the coolest personal moment for me was actually the game last year in Green Bay that we lost in the playoffs. It was Lambeau Field. I worked a handful of games at Lambeau Field. It has never snowed during a game that I have worked at Lambeau Field. There's been snow on the ground, it snowed before the game, but Lambeau's a pretty magical place. Mm-hmm. And we had gone inside, we were doing our interviews and I came back out onto the field. I needed to shoot some stand-ups for seahawks.com and it had started snowing on the field. And mm-hmm. even though we were disappointed at the end of the season, my photographer and I just kind of looked around and was like, man, this is like, this is kind of cool. Yeah. And Pete Carroll had passed me in the in the tunnel going down and he saw that I was getting ready to shoot some stuff. And and he passed me and then he started he started calling my name and he was like, Jen, Jen. And and I was like, yeah, you know, what's going on, coach? And he came back down the down the tunnel and he said, hey, um, do you have a camera over here? And I said, yeah, I I got a camera over here. And he said, how about if we stand and do an interview, which Pete never does? And we stand there and he said, why don't you ask me about the season? And why don't you? And he fed me like three questions because I didn't need this interview. And he had never, ever done this before. And he fed me like three questions that he wanted to talk about. And he and I were both tearing up during this interview. And after it got done, he just said, "Um, you know, I heard you talking and this is a special place. And why don't you just soak it up for a minute? And I wanted you to enjoy this on the field with me. And so, um. Just Pete recognizing that, Um, and I said I passed him when we got on the plane um, to leave. He was he sits in the first row, and I was walking past him, and he said, "I hope that interview was okay." And I said, "Thank you so much for that, coach. That meant a lot. I've never, I never would have stopped to think about that moment." And he said, "You deserved it, and I'm glad that I could give that to you because it is special, and uh, and you're a part of the team." So, like that whole thing, even though it wasn't football related and it was after a loss, I. I will always remember and cherish that conversation.
1: That's amazing. Hearing that story there, I was slightly confused at first when you said it was after a game that we lost. Okay, like, <laughs> well, what's what's that all about? But no, that that is that's a, that's unreal. That's that's an amazing story to hear. And I, as you say, I bet that's so rewarding to have. You know, have him just come up to you and go, "Oh, do you want an interview?" Like that's. Yeah. That gave me goosebumps just thinking about it. Same here. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, that, that's all from me on that one. I think.
0: So, was there? I'll, I'll, I'll follow up on a little bit more on that one, Jen. Is there sort of like to be on the sideline for a moment, like the Beast Quake, that is just such a synonymous moment in not just Seahawks history, but in in NFL history. It's you know it's one of the greatest moments in in NFL history, in my opinion. It are you sort of like aware of of the moment that you're in? Do you kind of get lost in it? Is there any time that you just get, you forget what you're doing and, and why you're there and just become a fan? Is it like, is it hard to sort of remember what you're there for as a reporter?
2: It's almost the other way around. Wow. So it's different being on the field, right? And and when it's happening in real time, you recognize that it's an impressive run. But you also have to recognize I'm 5'4". So I'm short compared to these guys. And I am running down the sideline. I'm trying to keep up with Marshawn. I can't. Wow. Um, so I'm I'm running and you're moving and I'm missing all of the blocks, right? Because it's part of my job is to get to the point where I can see if there happens to be a close play at the goal line or on a sideline where I would have like an actual view of what happened and then I could report on that. Yeah. So in the moment you recognize it's an impressive run because I can hear Steve calling play by play in my IFB. Right. Yeah. But it's not until they showed the replay on the video in stadium that you recognize, you know, from a higher viewpoint what it is that Marshawn had done. I will say when you're on the field and 68,000 fans at now Lumen field are jumping up and down, it is deafening Mm -hmm. and it also throws off your equilibrium because the, so you're, you're standing on the field, right? And you look up and everybody is bouncing (laughs) up and down. And when everybody is bouncing up and down, it makes it feel like you're riding a wave, even though you're standing completely still. And even when you're at the game, you know that that was a big highlight. You know that that was a big turning point. But when you get out of the building and you watch it on national highlights and you hear what everybody else is saying, now you realize how big that was. Like that Fail Mary game that everybody talks about with Golden, I had it called a touchdown because of a personal experience I had had as a high school football official, mm-hmm. um, I had it called a touchdown just based on a rule interpretation. I did not realize until we got into the locker room and until I could hear the conversation that everybody else was having, how controversial it was because we don't see the national broadcast. Right. And you're just listening to Steve Rabel say touchdown Seahawks. I'm not seeing the 15 different plays that every replays that everybody's seen at home. So it's almost like you're in that moment, you're doing your job and you truly become a fan afterwards. Having said that, when there is a really big play, you can you never scream in a tr- in a press box, right? A press mm-hmm. box is really sterile. It's really quiet. Being on the sidelines, it doesn't matter if I scream as long as I don't scream into an open microphone. Like, nobody can hear <laughs> I me. Mean, it's just part of it. So I have, in fact, yelled and or cheered on a big moment on the sidelines just because I can um, and because the emotion took me in that moment.
0: Wow. I mean, like I say, I mean... I don't know how I would sort of, you know, I'm I'm trying to think back to sort of big plays like say you've got the 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 beast mode run, you've got the amazing catch by Lockett against the Rams, just like any sort of big play. If I was sort of in your shoes, I, I would, I don't know how I would restrain myself from running on the field and and jumping with them, and it's like it just must be so. Hard to to like say or like even in in an interview situation if you know that this person's just and you and you can feel this emotion in you and you just want to jump for joy and and scream and excitement is it, is it is it hard to restrain it at times?
2: Okay, so two things about that. One, I learned when I covered a no hitter in baseball. The first no hitter I ever covered in baseball was a combined no hitter. And I didn't recognize it because it was a combined no-hitter. It took like six pitchers, and it's a real that's a really unique way to get a no-hitter if we're talking about baseball. And I listened to my interview questions afterwards, and essentially it was exactly what you're saying, James. It was a lot of, oh, my gosh, how cool is this? Like I felt like that's what I was <laughs> saying over and over again. And I went back and I listened to it. And I'm like, I sound like an idiot, and that was not <laughs> a good interview, right? Totally emotional. The guys, you know, they gave okay – They were excited. Right. They gave okay answers. But I thought, man, as a reporter, I didn't do a good job of giving more insight with that question and with that answer. Right. So I've always kind of kept that in the back of my head. So when you ask, is it hard not to get caught up in the emotion? Well, I don't want to sound like an idiot when I do the interview. So I'm trying really hard to get a question that, again, gives them a chance to tell the story. I do run out onto the field. If it is a game-winning play, if we win with a last-second field goal, if we win Jacob Hollister last year, two touchdowns against Tampa Bay, huge, right? One of them happens as time expires. I do bust my butt to get to the other side of the field. Um, And you realize very quickly that large men wearing helmets and pads (laughs) can't see you and don't care. So you can get knocked around pretty good in that pile, which will keep you on the sidelines a little bit longer. Um, Also, those guys are still athletes, even after they played an entire game. So I did, in fact, strain a muscle running after Sebastian Janikowski one time. Um, I have been out of breath trying to trace them down onto the field. You think that you're going to have enough emotion to get all the way across the field or all the way down to the end zone, and you have no idea how hard it is to sprint like that and then catch your breath before doing an interview. So all of those things are true. And, um, once you experience it in real time, once you realize that, okay, wait a minute, (laughs) I I cannot hang with the big boys in this situation. (laughs) I need to stay safe. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. Um, we'll move on. It's been, um, in, in, in this week, it's been, as you'll be more than well aware, I, I saw it on, on your social media, you're sharing it as well, and I imagine you're a big supporter of it, um, International Women in Sports Day this week. Um, and it must be, I, I'm interested to hear your opinion in sort of, obviously, you like I say, you've been in broadcasting for 15 years now, there or thereabouts. Um, how sort of, how have you seen the sort of growth in female job opportunities in, in the NFL and, and the world of sports, and, you know, how... Is it more accepted now? Is it more, you know, is it, are there the same challenges 15 years ago as there are today for women in sports?
2: Well, I think the challenges have changed, and I do think that there's a lot more acceptance. So I've actually been in broadcasting 20 years and I've been on TV and radio yeah. for about 15, right? So so if you take it back, which makes me even older, but <laughs> if you take it back. Right to the mid to late 90s when I had identified I want to be a sports broadcaster, mm-hmm. essentially the feedback I got was good luck. We wow. don't know if that's ever going to happen. right? There was only a handful of women doing sports around the country at the time. Now they were doing it in pretty high profile jobs, but there was definitely no guarantee that I was going to be accepted as a sports reporter or mm-hmm. a sports broadcaster. Also, it was unusual to see women on the sidelines then. So every time you walked into a locker room, it was like, well, what is she doing here, right? And it's not that I was, uh, that's not always a bad thing, right? But there was part of this, okay, you gotta prove yourself over and over and over again on behalf of what felt like kind of all women everywhere. Yeah. Now, when I go into a locker room, not only have I been doing this long enough where there's always people in a locker room that know who I am, but these guys, they don't know what it's like not to have a a sideline reporter. They don't know what it's like not to have a female sideline reporter. They don't know what it's like not to see women anchoring sports and or anchoring local sports. They just they don't even bat an eye. They think that this is normal, which is good. And that makes Mm -hmm. it easier to have conversations and easier to build relationships. There certainly are more women working in sports. And I think there's more opportunity, partly because of um, digital, right? Every NFL team has digital departments. Every media outlet has a digital department. They've got digital reporters. So now you're not vying for just a handful of jobs. You've got a lot of opportunities that are out there. You've also got a lot of women who have played sports, right? And so that also becomes another avenue for being accepted and finding your niche and your role there. It's hard to be successful in this industry, whether you are a female or not. Like we talked about, it takes takes a lot of grinding. It takes a willingness to not make much money, to work nights, weekends, and holidays. It's tough for everybody. I do like what we're seeing as far as more women. And just look, whether this ends up to be your dream job or not, because people get into this industry and figure out, "Mm, I don't, I don't really like being away from my family every weekend during football season or whatever the case may be.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Just seeing that there is a path makes a huge difference. You can decide after you start going down the path that it's not for you. But unlike when I attempted to do this in the mid-90s, I couldn't figure out what the path was. I kind of felt like, well, shoot, I'm just, I'm winging it, right? Yeah we'll see what happens. I'm kind of winging it. I'm making the best guesses and best decisions that I can. But if I can help show somebody what their path could be, that's where you're going to open up more doors for opportunity later on with whatever women want to end up doing in sports.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and um, before we move on to our next uh, next topic, is there sort of if there are any sort of young women or, or, or anyone, like say, trying to sort of forge their career in sports and make their way into sports now, is there sort of one piece of advice that either you've been given or you would advise someone yourself that you would say, right, this is, if you're going to do it, then, you know, this is my advice to you? What is there a sort of a key thing that you would, that you would pass on?
2: Yes. I would say number 1 figure out what your niche is going to be. Right. Right. So if you already have you know if you were already a collegiate track athlete, please focus on track, right? That it doesn't make any sense not to use that and not to leverage that. Yeah. Um number 2 commit to thinking that something good is going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right? you're not always going to love every opportunity that you get, but you shouldn't miss the opportunity, right? So for example, one of the jobs that I had was working in the PR department for a minor league baseball team. One summer that I was in college, part of that job description was clean the stadium after baseball games. I scrubbed toilets and I cleaned the stadium and I did not like doing either of those. (laughs) But what I did like was the opportunity to work in a PR department and Somewhere along in my crazy mind, I convinced myself it was going to be really good tomorrow. Like the next day was going to be really good. And so in those times where you think that it doesn't matter, again, you got to play that game with yourself and be competitive enough to keep showing up with that same enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the third thing is this, recognize that credibility doesn't get built overnight. And it just takes time. That's the thing I asked my mentor over and over again. And I would say, look, I just want people to believe me. I just want them to respect me. I just, I just want to do the job good enough that they know that I should be here. And he said, well, then like, just keep doing it. I'm like, no, no, no. There's got to be something else. Like, how do I, how do I prove to them? How do I establish credibility? It's like, you just keep doing it. It takes time. And I thought he was blowing me off and he's not. And so if credibility if you don't feel like you have the credibility, this is all part of the process, right? So don't get discouraged if somebody doubts you early on, you're gonna have to prove it to them over the long haul. And so perhaps those three pieces of advice will just recognize that if you're getting into the industry, there's gonna be challenges. It's hard for people to succeed, but know that once you're on the path, again, it's part of the process. Just play it out, find something to work towards every day, and one day you'll be able to look back and go, "Wow, I I made it like, fifteen twenty years. I don't know how that happened, but it happened."
0: Fantastic, Matt. If you want to go for the next one, mate. Um, yeah. Uh, so we just
1: wanted to talk about um, the books that you've written and yeah. um, also that you've founded uh, Talk Sporty. To me, um, have you got any sort of explanation as to? as to why you did those things and, and what motivated you to to, do, to write, book, write the books and, um, and start, the, start Talk Sporty to me?
2: Well, I could tell you that it all falls in line with being told that I talk too much as a kid <laughs> yeah. and I just wanted to create more opportunities to talk. Um, but I, I was an accidental entrepreneur. I didn't intend to start a business. What I intended to do was find a way to help people use sports in conversations that they were having, but they weren't utilizing sports fandom to its full potential, right? So sports fans are not just fans on game days, right? You aren't just a football fan on Super Bowl Sunday. If you were a football fan, you're a football fan all year long, right? And so that means that there's an ability to connect with people relating to football and sports all year long. If you aren't using that to build your network and to build business relationships, you are missing a big opportunity. So it really started off with, here's a way to help people. This is my expertise. I see things a little bit differently. Let me give you some tools that will help with your communication skills. The other part of it is, when you have been told good luck your entire career and women don't belong in sports, I don't hear that now, but when that's what I heard, right, yeah. coming out of college and, and first in the industry, I always wanted a backup plan. I know that the chance is high that my usefulness on TV, like they, they're going to think that I've outlived my usefulness before I want to stop working. Mm-hmm. And what I don't want to find myself is in a position where I don't have anything to fall back on. Yeah. Right? This is a way that I can control, in some ways, control my own destiny. Right. I, I know that I have something to fall back on because, again, in the back of your mind, if you're always thinking, well, I could lose my job tomorrow or next week or next month, that's not a very fun feeling. Um, but yeah, TalkSporting to me, it's different business communication skills. And, and Matt, I'll go one step further and I'll say I've read a lot of business communication books because I am fascinated by the conversations we have. I know the power of them, and yet not a single one of those books will tell you how to have the conversation you need to have. They'll all say it's important to communicate, to which I would say, no kidding. But if you don't already have the verbiage or the strategy, they can't provide it to you. I can because this is what I do for a living, and it has to be strategic. Because those post-game interviews we've talked about in the locker room, they're three questions long, or they're four questions long. You better believe that I like, know how to get that story in four questions. When I'm doing a sideline radio hit, that's 15 seconds. That's three sentences, and I don't get any more time than that. So I have to be very intentional with the messages. When I'm asking a player for an interview, there is a right and a wrong way to do it. And, and right way would mean that we are both in agreement as to what's happening, how long something is taking, when it is happening, what we are talking about, right? If you can cover all of those things in 15 seconds, I can get the interview, right? And all of this translates to business. If you cannot concisely deliver a message, if you cannot make the ask in a way where somebody is going to respond, you've missed an opportunity. And I'm sure you can tell I'm getting a little bit on my soapbox here, but we (laughs) take for granted the conversations that we have. We take for granted that people can read our minds and we take for granted that people are going to respond regardless as to what it is that we say. Mm -hmm. Right. We think that any conversation is a good enough conversation to say that we're communicating when the truth is you need to be really thoughtful and really intentional in how you approach conversations, how you approach relationship building and how you approach the questions that you're asking. Yeah.
0: As, as sort of a, a follow up in, 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 in terms of that, and, and in a similar sense is the question that we asked about the, the personal highlights of your broadcasting career. Is there a sort of a, a moment that you're most proud of in terms of, you know, after establishing Talk Sporty to Me and doing your books? Or is, you know, have you like heard from someone who you, has been inspired by you? Is there sort of a, a personal highlight from that side of, of, of your career as well?
2: Yeah, one of the strategies that I teach people is to have a success statement ready to go. A success statement is an answer to how are you that's better than good or great or fine, right? Because we would all say, hey, how are you today? Hey, James, it's good to see you. How are you? And then you would probably say, good. Uh, I'm all right. Yeah. I'm
0: all right. I'm all right.
2: Right. And then, I, then you would say, hey, Jen, how are you? And I would say, I'm good. And- Then we would both sit there and look at each other, Yeah. right? Because we don't know where the conversation should go. So I teach people, and this I promise this has a point that answers your question. I teach people to have a one-sentence statement that's ready to go, right? And I call it a success statement. And if utilized correctly, you can spotlight exactly what you are most proud of, right? So if you were to ask me today, I would say, hey, um, I'm awesome. I'm not only recording this podcast, I've got another one set up next week, and I've got a client that's uh, looking at doing an online event in a couple of weeks, right? Now you've got something to talk to me about, and I have just told you what I am proud of. Mm. When you do this with a manager or boss, it changes the way people see you and your value, and it allows you to advocate for yourself on a daily basis. And I have heard from a number of people, women in particular, who have found this strategy to be very helpful, and that is gratifying. When they feel like they have a way to have that conversation about what they're doing at work without feeling like they're bragging about it, or without drawing you know, a large amount of attention to themselves but just highlighting, I just kicked butt on this job, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to hear from them saying that made a difference in how I perceived myself in a performance review that allowed me to ask for more money that allowed me to ask for um, a title increase, you know, that allowed me to ask for more responsibility to hear something like that. Absolutely. Makes me smile. This week I got emails, um, on, I've got a new video series called asking better questions. Yeah. And some of the feedback from the series is, I'm having shorter meetings that are more productive. I just got more time back in my day. And to hear that, because I don't know what you're going to do with that extra time. Maybe you're spending time with your family. Maybe you're sleeping more. Maybe you're working out. It doesn't matter. But more time, anytime I can give that back to somebody, it's thrilling. So it is fun to hear reactions from how people end up utilizing the strategies. That's
0: fantastic, Jen. Um, so we'll move on to our last sort of question and then we'll get on to the sort of community questions that we've had sent in by all you lovely people. Um, it's it, And we've got to bring this up. It's been the hot topic of 2020 and, and it seems like it's never going to end, hopefully, with the vaccinations and everything like that. And, and and you know, we'll be seeing the back of COVID very soon. But I'm interested to see from a sort of, uh, like I say, a broadcaster's point of view and someone who is, you know, their, their line of work has been directly disrupted entirely by this COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, you know, has it been even more challenging than you would, than you you know you initially thought it would? Has has have you had the same level of job satisfaction? You know, how how has COVID impacted you this year?
2: Yeah, it was really stressful, particularly at the beginning of the football season. So I had adjusted a little bit. We had done all of our Mariners broadcasts virtually. Yeah. So I had an idea of what was coming. But with with the guys in the Seahawks locker room, I'm used to having in-person conversations with them. And I'm used to traveling on the plane with them every week. And there was a fear that I would be forgotten in the whole thing, right? If, yeah. if you're not top of mind, if you're not being seen, you know, what happens then? How am I going to get interviews? How am I going to build relationships? And it took Mm -hmm. me a little bit to figure out that even though I couldn't be in the locker room and I would stand up, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the Seahawks training facility Uh, in Renton, Washington, it's called the VMAC and there's a huge berm. So there's a huge hill and I was allowed to stand on the hill at practice and watch. And, you know, sometimes the practice, they're practicing on a far practice field and I'm sure (laughs) I look like a little ant to these players standing (laughs) on the hill, but I showed up every day that I was allowed to be there. And then I started running into these guys. We would get COVID tested. I was in the NFL protocols and I would bump into these guys when we were getting COVID tested in the morning. And I would say, Oh man, boy, I miss seeing you. I miss talking to you. I miss seeing you. And they would say, oh, but we see you. We see you standing out there. And I thought, okay, there are different ways to build relationships, right? And my stress over, can I still maintain and build relationships started to subside because even though it didn't look the same, um, once I figured out that it still mattered that I was showing up, whether it was on our press conferences where they could see my face and I was just a face and, you know, 20 other people, Um, I I started to relax and knowing that they weren't going to forget me. They were still going to talk to me, which is really what this is all about, right? If you don't talk to me, I can't do my job. And now I'm starting to worry about job security (laughs) at that point in time. Um, But also we broadcast every game from Lumen Field, formerly CenturyLink Field, right? That means that away games, we were watching it on the same TV feed that you were watching it on. And calling the game off of that really hard to do sideline reporting that way, Mm -hmm. right? Really hard. So job satisfaction from could I contribute enough to that type of broadcast? That was hard for me, but job satisfaction and other ways, knowing that I could reach out to guys during the course of the week and still get good information that, could be used somewhere in a broadcast. Does that make sense? Yeah, Right. I'm not observing the same thing, but I still found a way. It was a challenge, and it's nice to have a challenge when you're 15 years in, right? I still found a way to do that. So um, it is not the same, and I can't wait for it to go back to the point where we can do these interviews in person and when we can see people in person. But there is some satisfaction in knowing that, we could adapt, we figured something out, and we were still able to give fans a pretty good experience during the course of the year.
0: Yeah. Um, and and in terms of the Seahawks in sort of their performance in managing COVID, I think they've notoriously mm-hmm. been sort of, I think I, I might be right in saying that they had no positive COVID tests on right. no sort of COVID uh, list guys this year. Is that, would you put that down to sort of like the the culture around the team and and, and Pete Carroll and, and the, the players buying into to sort of taking these measures?
2: Yeah. In fact, Pete addressed it a number of times saying, look, this is no different than any other competition. Part of the yeah. competition this year is against COVID and we compete all the time against everything. And so, yeah, they turned it into um, if you want to win, if you want to win the season, if you want to be successful on Sundays, you're also going to have to win in these regards. So, They had really strict protocols, um, really strict testing. And, yeah, not a single player tested positive. We had a couple of false positives, but not a single player tested positive during the season. The only NFL team to do that. Yep.
0: Fantastic. And like I say, I think the Seahawks... And the NFL in, in general deserve massive credit for, you know, getting this season on and, and not having any games abandoned. And, you know, it's it's been hard, as obviously, as fans and obviously, as you know, reporters and everything this year. But I think we do have to take our hats off to not just the Seahawks and the NFL, but for giving us football this year in in a year that it could very easily have not happened at all. And, and we could have had a year off completely. So hats off to everyone involved in the Seahawks. Hats off to yourself, to the NFL, everyone involved in that. Um, so we'll get to the community questions now. Harry sent one in. Um, we've sort of touched on it a little bit, so I'll kind of rephrase it for him. He's asked, what is the best interview you've ever done? But I know, you, like you say, you've you mentioned some of the interviews, like the the, the, the Golden Tate one after the film Mary. Is there a, a sort of a little add on to that? Is there one interview that you could, you know, redo or relive again? It, you know, is there just one that you would love to do again?
2: Well, so if I had to pick one interview in my entire broadcasting career, it's Felix Hernandez after his perfect game. But since we are talking about um, football, you might want a you might want a football one. It's the Doug Baldwin, Jermaine curse interview after that NFC championship game against the Packers where Uh Russ had thrown four interceptions. And then it was the fifth time he targeted Jermaine that he actually makes the catch. We win the game. That was a crazy couple of minutes. Um, There's a couple of things about the end of the game. That is the only time. And I am smiling as I say this. (laughs) So Doug Baldwin is one of my go-to guys, was always one of my go-to guys in the locker room, right? Um, I was trying to get to Jermaine, who had just made the game-winning catch. I nearly got taken out by four camera guys who were also trying to get to Jermaine. So I see Doug. So I stopped Doug. And I'm asking, what was it that Russell Wilson said on the sidelines right before, you know, going out there for that game-winning drive? Yeah and Doug dropped an (laughs) F-bomb. It is the only time that has happened in an interview I have done, and it was being done live. And you talk about emotion in that moment, and I did not think that that was gonna happen. So I had to apologize to the audience, and I had to, you know, like, oh, it's clearly very emotional, we apologize for the use of inappropriate language sort of thing. But Doug continued the interview and he continued the interview to the point where Jermaine came over. And so then I was able to actually talk to Jermaine right after he made the game winning catch. And uh, somebody snapped a picture, and that's the one that I have in my office. Um, But yeah, that one was pretty fun just for the emotion and just the, um, man, it's just the immediacy of being right there. The other part of that is there was a guy named Chris Matthews who had actually recovered the onside kick. I had been working really hard to build a relationship with him because he was he wasn't a big time like he wasn't a big name player on that team. But I was working really hard to develop a relationship. So when everybody wanted to go and talk to Chris, who they hadn't talked to all year long. Yeah. It was very easy for him to say yes to doing the interview with me and to smile while he was doing it because I had told him while I was building the relationship in the locker room, you know, someday I'm going to come and I'm going to do a post-game interview with you. And so when I showed up in front of him, he just smiled and he knew what was going to happen next. And wow. so th- there was a very gratifying part of, um, you put in the time to build that relationship and then you see it all pay off in a big moment.
0: Wow. that That's like I said, it must just be, like you say, an amazing moment to know that, you know, you're on the field after that, you know, I mean, that's a franchise moment. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of Seahawks' focus, part of Seahawks' history, like I say, and, you know, it must just be an amazing feeling to know that you are, you know, this is, I am talking to these people who've just made Seahawks' history. It must be amazing.
2: It, it is, and, you know, a locker room is just like any other environment when it comes to personality types, right? Yeah. So I think, it, I love being part of the team, I love being in the middle of the action, I love being on the field. But when you talk to players in the way you know they need to hear it, right? Because there's introverts, there's extroverts, there's guys who like to talk, there's guys who would never talk about themselves, they'll only talk about their teammates, there's guys who give short answers and long answers, and, and knowing what to do in that moment to put them in the best position to tell their story, Yeah, there's always kind of that underlying thing of, did I make you look good? Did I get the story? does the audience feel satisfied with that answer? Right. Mm-hmm. But did I give you a chance to tell the story in a way that you feel comfortable? <clears throat> and so I think there's always kind of that underlying thing of that makes me feel good. Cause I know that I did my job.
0: Absolutely. Like I say, there must be, like you say, it, it's not just, a case of just turning up with these guys, handing the microphone to them and asking them questions. There's, there's definitely, I think from what you're saying, that there's there's an art to it, and there's an art to sort of knowing who you're interviewing, being aware of who you're interviewing, like you say, with, with someone like Chris, who was maybe sort of maybe a bit hesitant, a bit quiet, of like say, not having as much of the spotlight on him, and all of a sudden, all of the media want to talk to him, it, it it must be, you know, like you say, to be aware that, oh, I, I shouldn't ask, say, Doug Baldwin this, but I can ask Jermaine this. And it, it must be sort of, you know, it, not just, like you say, handing the microphone to someone and just, you know, rattling off questions from a, from a sheet of paper.
2: Yeah. And I'll tell you another one. How about the flip side of that? When you talk to guys before they get big... Right. So Richard Sherman, before he was Richard Sherman, people don't remember. It took three injuries for Richard Sherman to get on the field full time. Right. Mm -hmm. And before he was a household name, he would come up to me and say, hey, are you going to interview me today? Come on. Come on. I got some stuff for you. Interview me today. Wow. And so even though you had other guys who played bigger roles in the game, I would go over and I would do an interview with him. Because I yeah. knew at some point in time he was going to be the playmaker, right? There was a pretty good chance. But you can't ignore guys. And you you can't just talk to guys when you need something, right? Yeah. You have to be talking to them along the way. You have to give them a chance, right, to be in the spotlight for a minute if you're Richard Sherman, right, before yeah. anybody knew who you were. <laughs> and so, I mean, that went on his the year that he started um, – And he would come up to me all the time. He'd be like, I got some good stuff for you. And nobody would go over and talk to Sherman, but I would go over and talk to Sherman. And then one or two people would go over. When he got to be Richard Sherman, I could no longer talk to him because there would be 25 people around his locker and I could not get in to talk to him. Or he would be at the podium in the other room and I'm still in the locker room doing interviews. And he would always come back in and he'd a give me a hard time for not being in the room with him which he knew what I was doing. Um but he would give me a chance to ask him questions if I if I still needed them. He would say, "Hey, do you need anything?" Like it, it was this reciprocal um uh, yeah, I I could see I know that your arm wasn't long enough to get the microphone in. Do you need something cuz I'll hang around and and I'll give you a few questions. So, wow. It's um yeah. You always want to talk to the guy who made the, the biggest play, but you got to keep in mind the guy who's coming up next who's going to make that play in the future.
0: Absolutely.
1: Over to you, Matt. Um, yeah, Jen, you mentioned just uh, a, a minute ago about sort of interviewing players that gave sort of longer answers and some that would maybe give out short answers. And as soon as you said that, that reminded me of the the video of the Marshall and Lynch interview, where he answered every question with just, yeah did you have any involvement with that yeah in
2: fact I think I think that was the first time the yeah one wasn't that the first time that he had the same response to every question yeah I think so that was my interview I did start that interview and here's what surprised me about that Marshawn and I have a great relationship and he used to give interviews that were fantastic I mean he is he is a smart guy. He loves football. He loves his teammates. And when he first got traded to the Seahawks, we would do regular three to five minute interviews after games. And then that relationship changed. So it did surprise me when he answered every question with, yeah. And I did ask the first four questions in that interview. And then I broke away and I let everybody else because I knew that we weren't going to run that in our post game show, right? Yeah. As a team. Reporter, I knew we weren't going to do that. Also, when it became clear that that was Marshawn's approach, like that's how he was going to handle it, he and I would talk during the week at his locker, typically not about football stuff. But I no longer would try to interview him after the game because I can't make him talk, right? I can ask a great question, but I can't make him give an answer. And there was 52 other guys in there that I could talk to. So I just took the approach of I'm going to ask all the teammates about Marshawn because he didn't want to talk about himself anyway. Um, But, yeah, it did surprise me. I thought he had some good ones. And I tell you what, the discipline that it takes, people can say that he was a jerk. He wasn't a jerk. He's a great guy um, with just a tremendous he's got a tremendous mind and just his insights and wisdom um it takes a lot of discipline to do that though (laughs) I just I would look back and I would laugh and I just thought it was I thought it was kind of funny but yeah he was he was uh he was a a unique personality in those interviews
1: for sure (laughs) yeah that's what I've always wondered about um obviously I I didn't know it was yourself that 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 was part of that interview which is why I just why um I just asked that one but yeah that must have been such a a difficult conversation
2: to have it was just bewildering because you don't you again if you're not expecting it you're like well what am I supposed to do is it is it my questions did I do something to make him mad like what's going on and then you realize that he's doing it to everybody else you're like okay well it's not just me and I don't know what happened but okay we're just we'll just let him do what it is that that he's gonna do so yeah, but you know, if you talk about long answers, short answers, I kind of thought you were going to tell me, Jen, your answers are too long today. <laughs> not too. <laughs> I would not the first time I would have heard that, but right after a loss, you don't expect guys to be overly chatty, so yeah. you better have your questions like ready to go because it's probably a rapid fire interview, right? So I have to know that going in. Okay. What are these three or four questions that I can ask if he gives me a 15 second, you know, he, if he's really short, do I have another one to go to? How am I going to handle this? If I get a one word answer, right? Um, yeah, you kind of have to know that and be aware because those conversations can get awkward really quickly.
1: I, I can imagine. So I've got a question here from Janar. Sorry if I've butchered your name. Um, and they've asked about what you feel about the Seahawks changes at, um, offensive coordinator obviously we've parted ways with um with shotty um and we've got i can't remember his name shane waldron, waldron? Shane waldron. that's it thought i'd know that yep. one <laughs> yeah just wondering on uh, on your thoughts on that
2: you know we talked to him earlier this week and it seems like his philosophy is right in line with pete and it sounds like it's right in line with russell and you know I think when you when you first look at the system that he came out of with the Rams, it seems counterintuitive when you heard Pete say, we want to run the ball more. And then you take a look at the Rams and you see what they had and how much they threw the ball. But really, that Rams offense is pretty balanced. When you take a look at run to pass, just ratio in a game. And I do believe that, if you are able to disguise the looks, which is what the Rams did so well, they would run five different plays out of the same formation. Um, I, I do think that that benefits the offense in general. And I heard a conversation this week about how that system, and, and we don't know if Waldron's going to completely do what the Rams did. You got to remember that he coached under Belichick. He's got other experiences here. He coached it, the Washington football team. This is not like it's the only system that he's ever known. So he's going to create his own offense. But the Rams scheme was designed to make it easy on the offensive linemen because they are in the trenches and they work their tails off during the game. If that's the case, then I like where this is going. Just in general, right? With the talent up front, doesn't matter who your running back is going to be. You've got some question marks as to who your number three and number four receiver are going to be next year. But you can put Tyler and DK in good positions. I don't think that this is about being creative, which is what I've heard a lot of people say. I do think it is about trying to maximize some of the talent and making sure that you're on the same page, right? To hear Shane Waldron say, it's all about the ball which is what Pete says all the time that wasn't Shane just coming up with that on his own or mimicking Pete. That really is his philosophy. You know, I think that that bodes really well for the relationship, especially when the decision to part ways with Brian Schottenheimer was listed as philosophical differences, right? So if you're in alignment philosophically, it should mean good things going forward. Um, But who knows what's going to happen, I guess. At the moment, I, I like the interaction with him. I think that there could be some good things ahead for the Seahawks offense.
0: That's what we'd like to hear. We'd love to hear that. Um, next question is from Eamon again. Sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, uh, my friend. He's asking, what are the players like in the sideline and who are the biggest sort of characters and leaders that you've come across so far? I can imagine Marshawn being one of them.
2: Marshawn Doug was pretty vocal on the sideline on defense Bobby Wagner man if Bobby Wagner ever calls the huddle on the sideline for the defense you know that you're in trouble like he is (laughs) mad and he is gonna get you in line like there's just no question right um he's a great one KJ is another one KJ right if KJ starts yelling you know that you are way past the point of when you should have been yelled at because <laughs> if KJ's not happy um, anytime <laughs> if you watch Dwayne Brown closely <clears throat> generally emotions are pretty like even keeled during the game. But Dave Wyman, the color analyst, will say, you know, like if Dwayne's mad and he comes over to the sideline, Dwayne will say, like, the ground is afraid of Dwayne right now. You know, like <laughs> no, like inanimate objects don't want to be anywhere close to him right now. Um, but yeah, Marshawn eating Skittles—that was a—that was always a good one on the sidelines. Doug would be, get animated. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have, to, my interaction is a lot with the snapper and kicker and punter. I'm trying to stay out of their way. So, you know, John Ryan was a character during games. We would chat on occasion after plays, um, different things. So, yeah.
0: Fantastic. Uh, a, a little quick one before we get to Matt's final question, just for me. Um, I mean, he's an absolute, um, hero of mine in the Seahawks world. And I think I'll, he'll be a hero of every Seahawks fan out there. Mr. Steve Rabel, we've touched on him before. Um, just just how is it like how how is he sort of obviously we we know how animated he gets during the games and on the calls, you know it's some legendary calls I'd like say, but outside of the broadcasting booth and sort of when you just sort of sit and chat with him, is he is he as enthusiastic? I mean, I can imagine he is, but just what kind of a guy is Steve able to work with?
2: He's fun. I mean, he's um, one of the things that I miss most about this year is having a glass of wine with him at dinner the night before a game, or when we would get into a city, we would generally go down and have a, have a whiskey, you know, kind of a nightcap. Everybody on the traveling party would kind of just, you know, have a cocktail before they went to bed. Um, (laughs) He tells great stories. He is super smart. Remember, he was a news anchor for so many years, so he could talk about a lot of different subjects. Very gracious, um, incredibly, incredibly gracious. Um, yeah, and just he's a good friend. He's not as, I mean, he's not as crazy, over the top, animated. Yeah. But he's funny, and he laughs, and he has a good time. And so um, he is a perfect dinner part partner. So if you're trying to get like a good dinner party going, he's somebody that you would want to invite to keep that conversation and keep those laughs going.
0: Oh, I can imagine he'd be. So I would listen to Steve Rabel tell me stories until he had no more to give. I mean, like you say, from a player, from a broadcasting, he must just have endless amounts of stories. And like I say, I can imagine him just being this larger than life character that, you know, we see in the broadcasting booth and outside of it as well. Um, What an absolute legend he is. Matt, do you want to go for the final question, mate?
1: So I've got one question here from Ristian.
0: um,
1: And they've asked, uh, did you get a Super Bowl ring?
2: I did get a Super Bowl ring. I did. And I cried when I opened the box and they gave it to me. Um, wow. Yeah. It is uh, it is hidden safely in the house. I don't pull it out often. I did pull it out this week because it was the seven-year anniversary of winning that game in New Jersey. Um, yeah, it has my name on it. And where the wow. number... So. The the players had their jersey number put on it. And then for any of us who got rings that were not players, they put a 12 on one side of it. So that's great. Yeah. That's, wow. I do.
1: Um, that That's, I love one. I love a Super Bowl ring. <laughs> I have to get, <laughs> myself, uh, get myself on the Seahawks at some point, he says. Um, and <laughs> I mean, I, I like hearing what you said about um, Shane Waldron as well, his... Um, making things easier for the linemen um mm-hmm. i mean i'm i play offensive so i'm an offensive tackle uh for my uni over in the uk um and obviously it's a completely different level um but it shows sort of i guess the fact that the game's played over here sort of shows how big the nfl is in the uk as well um so i was wondering on sort of what your thoughts are on the international games obviously we didn't have any this year and um I mean I was personally I was unlucky enough not to go to the Seahawks game over here a few years ago, um but I did go to the Rams game against the Bengals last year um and I know the the atmosphere in there was was incredible um with all the fans of the different teams, which I suppose is something that you don't get at an NFL game in the states if that makes if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it was really interesting when we were over in London a few years ago. Uh, First of all, I love travel and I love international travel. So for me personally, it was awesome to be there. But to your point, right, it tends to be more of football in general or the NFL in general. I think what we were surprised at with that Seahawks game against the Raiders, even though the Raiders have a huge brand, right? There were a ton of Seahawks fans there. And we found out that the Seahawks fans are, like, everywhere. And they're not just passing fans, right? They didn't just get a jersey because the Seahawks were in town. There are fans who watch religiously, as you know. But we found that there's a huge fan base in Germany. There would be people coming up to us at events, you know, saying, oh, my gosh, we watch you from all over the world. And it was crazy to see um, just how many people love the Seahawks. It's cool to see people getting into the sport. I love football. I know that it gets a bad rap for health and safety issues, but I Mm -hmm. love the game. I love the strategy. Um, I think it's really cool. Sometimes it's hard to watch those international games just because of the time difference here, (laughs) right? And I'm already a stadium and and there's so much (laughs) going on. Um, But I think it's cool to be able to bring that to fans around the world when they're watching and they can actually then see it in person, in their stadiums, in their countries, in real time. Right. And not watching, you know, like the Super Bowl at midnight. They can actually watch it in the time that they should be watching football (laughs) in their stadiums.
1: I do have to say that there is something that, that hits different about watching the Super Bowl at midnight over here. It's, <laughs> it's great, you know, staying up until stupid time in the morning, having probably a few too many drinks and watching a, a game of football at that time. It is, I, it, I suppose it's something unique that we don't really have with with many other sports that we watch in the UK. Um, it's, it's great fun. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'd love to, to make the trip over to Seattle one day hopefully it'll happen soon um but i think there's there is something unique about the way uh, brits and and europeans and everyone who's not from the states consumes football i think obviously there's a lot of commitment to stay up till god knows when like you know some yeah. of the monday night, uh, sunday night football and monday night football games for you guys well. kick off at 20 past 1 in the morning for us
2: <laughs> oh, so <laughs> hey.
1: I've, I will watch, I mean, I'm a massive fan of Red Zone myself and I've, you know, praised Scott Hansen every week. <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll quite happily sit through this, the the good old seven hours of commercial free football. I had to drop that one in there. Um, and then sit around for a bit and then watch the Sunday night game until four o'clock or, or whenever oh it is. And then gosh, get up for, for uni the next day. So. It's, it's. I guess it's a strange way for us to 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 watch football over here. Um, But it's it's glad to see that. I'm I'm glad to see that someone like yourself really enjoys the London Games. And you know, I think there's there's a game in Mexico, I believe Mm -hmm. as well, isn't there? Yeah. Um. So it's good to see that they have sort of a good rep because you know you do hear some some bad things about it about teams don't want to give up games in the states because. The home fans don't get to see it but i suppose the fan base has grown massively around the
0: world recently
2: it has well, indeed yeah. absolutely
0: like i say Matt, i think you know i was lucky enough to to go to the seahawks game in 2018 against the raiders obviously my first ever game and everything like that and and it is one of the highlights of my sort of you know sporting you know life and sort of following teams and and stuff like that it's it, it absolutely is a highlight of mine so and and like I say without the international games, it, it's it's something that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to go and see at that time. And, and you know, without paying, you know, the, the thousands to go over and make the trip to Seattle, which we will do at some point because Lumen Field is just you know we, we have to go there. I know you do as well, Matt. Um, oh yes. But it's um, it's on on the on the international series. Sort of, it's it's a bit of a hot topic for the past few years about whether. Uh, a uk franchise would work in the nfl um and i'm interested to see your perspective i mean from my perspective it's a tough one because i think the fan base would welcome. like the, the fans are there for it but i think when you talk to a lot of uk fans who, who already follow the nfl they they already have their teams and you know yes we'd probably root for the uk team but you know i wouldn't sort of you know just drop the Seahawks and start following the uk team it's but it's and, and then obviously you've got to work out the logistics and everything and how would they play, you know, the games in, in the States and everything like that. So I'm interested to see your perspective on whether you could see a, a UK franchise or a European franchise working in, in the mainstream NFL.
2: Boy, I you know, it's interesting that you mentioned you already have your teams, right? Mm-hmm. And you're not necessarily looking for a UK team. I. This is clearly way above the people making decisions about this are way above my pay grade. I think that you would have a really hard time getting the Players Association to buy off on that because it is the logistics. And I realize that, you know, for Seattle to go to London, that is a long flight. Right. But if you're on the East Coast, that flight is actually to London from what, New Jersey? That's shorter Mm -hmm. than it is to fly from New Jersey to Seattle, right? So it's not the travel as much as it becomes um, just everything else, right? Around how you get paid, around where you stay. You you can't have your family over there necessarily if you've got kids that are in school. So they're going to be back in the States. It's hard to get back and forth, right? Like during the week, then now you've got to deal with a whole bunch of other things. I, I don't know that the Players Association is going to do that, and also your salaries would look different, right? Taxes look different. Your salaries would have to look different. Does that put the team in the UK at a competitive disadvantage, right? Because what happens then? Are you getting compensated, right, in U.S. dollars, but it translates differently over there? Um, I I don't know. To me, and again, this is just me having experienced one international game. It seems like having an international series is still the way to go, but. Yeah. Um, I have learned never to say never about these things.
0: Absolutely. Like I say, it's, it's an interesting one. It'll be a topic that will go on for, you know, until it's finally resolved. Like I say, I can't see it happening myself. Um, but long long live the NFL International Series. I can't wait. Obviously, it was muted that the Dolphins were, were going to come over and play that game this year, and that never happened. So um, hopefully we'll get some more on next year. Matt, do you want to go for another question there, mate? Oh, well,
1: Yeah, so I've just had one more thing that's just popped into mind. Um, so... Over here in the UK, um, obviously we don't get we don't get as much access to to players and and coaches and you know we, we can't go just go on on a on a training you know we can't go and visit the training camp for example nice and easily and um, so I've got I, I was lucky enough a while ago to win a uh, a signed DK Metcalf jersey in a raffle um which is framed on my wall I'm staring at it right as we speak (laughs) um and I was wondering sort of with yourself Jen is there any sort of obviously where it's in a line of work where, where you're where you're working do you do you ever sort of go to a player and say you know would you mind giving me an autograph per se I know that sounds a bit strange um but you know does it Would you were you as starstruck as we would be sort of when you see, you know, when you go up to Russ, for example, and, you know, have a conversation with him? Do do you ever get starstruck in that way and sort of have, you know, ask for autographs and things like that just out of interest?
2: No, I don't ask for autographs and I don't get starstruck over the current players because to me they've always been colleagues for lack of a better word. Right. But yeah, when you're sure. working, it's it's just people that you work with. Right. And to me, and this is not knocking autographs, right. I don't have a whole lot of places to put them, but the thing that makes it special to me, it's, it's having the picture, right. It's sharing the moment. The yeah. autograph doesn't, doesn't match the moment for me. And so the few things that I have autographed, are actually not even football items. I have a couple of baseball items. I have Kevin Durant uh, basketball. He signed the box score. I had printed off. I was covering that last game that they had at Key Arena before the Sonics left town. And he and I were walking out together and I had him sign the box score from that game. So I have a half crumpled up piece of paper with Kevin Durant's signature (laughs) on it. I had, uh, when Ken Griffey Jr. was playing with the Mariners, he had made ties that had Ichiro's face on them. Cause they all had to, it was required that they had to wear ties on the plane. And I said, well, that's, I made some comment about a tie or something. I don't know. And he signed the back of it and gave it to me. So I have a tie of Ichiro's face with Ken Griffey Jr. signature, like just random things that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, I'm not really starstruck. When I met Ken Griffey Jr. a little bit because I'd watched him play when I was growing up, right? So sure. It's guys. It's Jerry Rice, right? When I met when I met Jerry Rice, well, that's different, right? Because I watched him yeah. for a long time. But the current players, I can certainly appreciate that DK Metcalf is a specimen, that Russell <laughs> Wilson is one of the greatest players um, in the NFL. But it's a little bit different. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was just in just interested in that one. I mean, I kind of sort of expected that would be that would be sort of how you viewed it but I just didn't I didn't know if there was you yeah. know a little feeling of oh my god you know if I you know if, if I mean a lot of our guys over here when they come over for the the international games you know, you've know, got people lining the departures mm-hmm. lounge at airports I mean I, I'm I know I imagine you've seen that um and the number of people who would you know what people would give to be within that vicinity of of players mm-hmm. like Russ um Yeah, so I guess it's a completely different world from from a fan's perspective.
2: Yeah. Now, on the flip side, if I ever interview, like, musicians, now I'm starstruck. Right? So Mike McCready from Pearl Jam lives in Seattle and regularly comes to games and will do interviews because he's throwing out a first pitch or something like that. (laughs) First time you talk to that, first time I talk to Mike, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I can't, what am I supposed to ask you? Right? It's, (laughs) It's different. Athletes, not so much. But, like, legit rock stars, Eh, now I start to get a little tongue-tied.
0: Brilliant. Um, And we'll wrap it up with it's Super Bowl weekend, so we can't let you leave without a little prediction. If you want to do what our friend Rob did last week and just say both teams, and then we'll cut out whichever one loses and and make you look like a genius. Um,
2: (laughs) Now, that's just cheating.
0: That is cheating. So we'll press you for an answer. Chiefs, books. who are you taking?
2: I am taking the Chiefs. I'm taking right. the Chiefs. They're going to be the first team to win back-to-back Super Bowls since Tom Brady did it with the Patriots back in 2005. Um, so I'm taking the Chiefs. They're getting all my support. You don't have to cut it out. Um, that's how strongly I feel about Sunday's game.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. And, and I think even even with the few injuries that they've got in notable notable positions, um, I can definitely see the, the Chiefs. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is just... I mean, you run out of ex, you know, superlatives to 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 explain Patrick Mahomes. Matt, have you got a have you got a bet on? Have you got a prediction uh, for the, the Super well, Bowl? Uh,
1: we've had a a bit of a conversation at work. I've got two friends. I've got a Patriots fan and a Steelers fan at work, um, and we've had the discussion for the last week as to what colour the Gatorade is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. I'm not oh. sure. We've gone for blue.
0: Mm.
2: That's interesting.
0: Have not even thought of that. So, um...
1: there's, there's <laughs> actual official odds on it. On the
2: yeah, oh yeah, that's one of those prop bets. I, you know, I'd almost be willing to. I'm gonna. I would bet orange on that one. Actually,
0: mm. I, I would go with the I don't standard orange.
2: I would okay. think because I wouldn't think they would just be allowed to do red because it's Tampa in Tampa Stadium. Yeah. Right. I yeah. would think. I don't know, boy. Now I'm really going to be paying attention to that.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I've I've got the program <laughs> in front of me, and I'm looking at there's a there's a Gatorade advert of you here, and it's got red, clear, and orange on it. So there's I'm,
2: no way it's going to be clear because it's going no, to look too much like water. So we can rule that one out.
1: So, but I'm not. I, I reckon I'll, I'll rule out red because both teams play in red, and maybe orange. I'm not sure. We'll go with orange. You can't go wrong with orange. Interesting uh,
0: thing to look out for. That's the main yeah. one. Very interesting. That's very abs- that, I think that brings <laughs> it to an end. Um, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. And and like I say, you know this, this was you know you didn't have to do this. You're taking your time out of your day, and and like I say, we've got you up nice and early. So enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Um, we've talked Seahawks and this has been absolutely brilliant. So thanks again, Jen. Thanks, everyone.
1: Yes, thank you
2: very much. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Thanks, Jen.